0: Show you a better way, you don't have to be another face in the crowd, you don't have to live the way they tell hi you. folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, As always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. No, that's not a misstatement, and no, this is not a past episode. As many of you know, I screwed up yesterday. I left a show for you, um, at least I thought I did. There was an interview with Marjorie Wildcraft of Backyard Food Production. And um, rest assured, the interview is safe, and it's uh, it's going to be a great interview. But you're probably going to hear it like Monday or Tuesday next week, because I did not upload the file, and I attached the wrong file to yesterday's episode. That was the problem if you got the same show twice in a row in iTunes or whatever, you went to the site or what have you. Now, why did that happen? I was in a hurry to get out of town, because I had to come down here to uh, Arlington, Texas, and I'm staying in a hotel near my family and with my wife, and, uh, spending time with them, but the main reason was we had to schedule this to come down here to close on the home that we sold in Arlington, uh, and get rid of it and get our check, uh, out of the money we made on it and things like that. So, I thought I had done good. I thought I had left you guys with a show and I, you know, got down here, checked in our hotel room yesterday about two o'clock in the afternoon and, Lo and behold, I had screwed up, so yes, we all can do it, and I certainly do it probably more than other people, and uh, that means that there was no show yesterday, but there will be a show today, and that's why I'm in Arlington, because I'm down here where the family's at, and I'm here through Friday, so I don't know if there'll be a show tomorrow, I'm going to try to put one together, it's a little difficult here, uh, There's a, uh, the air conditioner in the room is noisy, hopefully there's not too much background noise, put the couch in front of it, so I'll be a little bit warm, but you guys hopefully will get better out in quality, but I'm going to do the best I can, Today's show should be fun though. A listener emailed me. Here's what he said. He said, Jack, I listened to your show on all these different herbal things. Uh, Herbal, you know, different culinary herbs you could use for medicinal purposes, uh, the four part series on herbal actions, all this different stuff. And and you mentioned these, these five herbs that everybody should grow. And I realized that other than maybe making some pesto or sprinkling some stuff on pizza, I don't really know what to do with these herbs. Could you do a show about using these herbs and what, how, you know, how to use them? So that's what we're going to do today. Before we do that though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is ready-made resources. What more can we ask from a company than they'll say, hey, you know what? This is the name of our company. The name of our company is what we do, and then they do it for you. That's what Ready-Made Resources does. They provide all the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready-to-go. Go Go by their website, click on uh, what you want, order it, and with quick, fast, efficient, professional service, They'll ship it to your house. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. I talk a lot about precious metals, folks. I say you have gold and silver as part of your investment portfolio and part of your redundancy plan for the financial situation out there. That's really not very safe right now. Well, I also believe in another form of precious metal. It's copper jacketed lead encased with brass, and that's ammo. And that's because, let me put it to you blunt, if you have a really great arsenal of weapons at home, guns, and you rely on them for hunting, for sporting activities, for self-defense, for civil unrest, for whatever you might need them for, but you don't have lots of ammo, you have very expensive clubs. Without ammo, your gun is useless. So make sure you stock up on your ammo. The best place I, need to do, I know to do that is BulkAmmo.com. Uh, their shipping is lightning fast. You'll get everything you can want and more from BulkAmmo.com when it comes especially to the common calibers, your 223s, your 308. 44 Magnum, 45 ACP, 40 Smith & Wesson, the kind of stuff that everybody's got one or more guns of that take them in their home. Next up, uh, make sure you connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I haven't been real heavy on Facebook and Twitter lately, uh, with all the travel. I get out of the habit, but when I'm in the office, I share a lot of information there. Um, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you'll be supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. So, again, let me kind of recap how we got to the show that we're going to do today. Um, I did a, a series on 40 herbal actions. And uh, I went through that, and it was the 40 primary things. And there's some other herbal actions, but these are the things that a medicinal herb actually does. And one thing I made sure I did was, in each episode, to make sure that I highlighted not just some exotic herbs, not, not just some herbs that are traditionally medicinal, But a lot of herbs that are in our spice rack, that are in our homes, that everybody, you know, walks by every time they go through the seasoning section in the grocery store, you walk by all of these herbs. No one sees them as medicine, uh, and that's because we've become reliant upon a modern system that tells us what medicine is. And we forgot that food is medicine. But out of all of those culinary herbs, there's five, and it's really hard for me to to limit it to five. And it was something I just kind of said on the fly, and I guess I gotta live with it now. But there are five herbs that I think if you're growing anything, and I don't care if you're growing an acre garden and you're providing yourself all of your vegetarian needs uh, or all you're doing is growing a few pots on your back porch, these five should be things that you're growing. And if you're not growing them, you should add them to what you're doing. And they are parsley, oregano, dill, basil, and rosemary. And it's, there's some other ones I'm going to mention at the end that really I feel like should be in there, and there shouldn't be five herbs. There should be seven or eight, um, sage, cilantro, and, and, and a few other things. The other one that actually has to be, you know, either you're, you're growing it, or if you don't have enough room to grow a lot of it, you're buying it, and you're using it with these herbs is garlic. And the reason I leave garlic out is it's more of a traditional... I think vegetable crop in a lot of people's minds. You're going to hear a lot about it today because most of the things I'm going to tell you about cooking with these herbs are going to include garlic. If you ask me what do I put garlic in, it would be easier for me to tell you what I don't put garlic in than to tell you what I do put garlic in. Garlic goes in almost everything that I cook, and I'm really big on using garlic at the end so that it doesn't get fully cooked through. It just gets worn because more of its medicinal properties are preserved when it's not overcooked or when it's actually raw. And that's the, that's the, that's true of a lot of these herbs. So, one thing I want you to keep in mind when you're using cul, uh, culinary herbs is even if you're cooking with them and you're you're starting early on doing a saute or something like that or making a mirepoix and you're adding a little bit of let's say basil and rosemary to that to give it some some lift. Don't ever be afraid to sprinkle some fresh herbs in the end of whatever you're cooking, no matter what it is, because there'll be more flavor up front from it, and there'll be more of the things that we're looking for. Um, The big thing I want you to take away, though, from this, is how much these herbs can actually do for you. So I want to go through all of these herbs, all of them, have at least some level of 10 of the 40 herbs primary, um, herbal medicinal actions, 10. Now, many of them also have some other ones, but every single one of the five does these things. One, there is antioxidant properties in there. So, you know, people are really hip on taking antioxidants today because they help reduce cellular damage. So, they're taking vitamin C and other vitamins that are antioxidants, things like pycnogenol, which is an extract from pine bark, um... CO- CoQ10. I mean, on and on and on it goes. It's an obsession with antioxidants, and yet all five of these these herbs are antioxidants. Antibiotic and good antibiotics. Antibiotics that are not going to go out and purge your intestinal system of all the positive bacteria, but have um, a highly um, not I'd say uh, let's call it a very mild um, effect on uh, ba- you know uh, bacteria that, that are that are bad for you. So these take out the bad and leave the good. Now. If you're sick and you need penicillin or ampicillin or ethromycin, uh, chewing on on a couple sprigs of parsley is not going to fix your problem for you if you have a serious infection. But added day-to-day to the diet, they have this ongoing, constant, very gentle, mild antibiotic effect. So they're also all antimicrobials which means there's certain things out there that are neither a bacteria nor a virus, but they are a microbe uh, that can be toxic to the human system. And all of these have some antimicrobial effect, antiviral. So just like any antibiotic, except we're dealing with viruses now. Uh, the oils, the essential oils of all of these herbs are all highly effective antivirals uh, because they're concentrated in the oil. But again, just including them in your diet... Uh, that means that they're going to have a very mo- moderate, mild antiviral effect that's constantly in your system. Uh, more like, let's say, preventive maintenance. than So making sure you check your oil and things like that instead of rebuilding the motor of your car when it breaks down. Uh, next up is hepatic. Hepatic basically is tonifying of the stomach uh, and the liver. So it helps actually uh, strengthen the liver. Uh, so again, a tonifying effect of the liver. Uh, that, again that's hepatic if, if any of these, these words sound a little off to you go back and listen to the, the four part series on the 40 different herbal actions you'll learn a tremendous amount from that series so a tonifying effect of the liver again is hepatic uh, a tonifying system of the entire body, so a tonifying effect or a tonic effect. All five of these herbs have a tonic effect, which means overall strengthening of the body, the immune system, and everything else. And if you think about it being antioxidant, antimicrobial, antiviral, uh, hepatic, uh, antibiotic, uh, you can see why it would have that effect all of them are also anti-inflammatory so those of you that deal with uh, occasional headaches and and body aches and things like that the the more of these you include in your daily diet the less you're going to have problems with uh, excessive inflammation now understand that one of the problems that we have in modern medicine with anti-inflammatory medications is Every type of person has an ache or a pain or anything attributed to inflammation, the, the, the desire is to completely eliminate all the inflammation. Well, that inflammation has a purpose. If you sprain your ankle, that inflammation is designed by the body to tell you, don't put weight on this, give it time to heal. And because it hurts, you'll do that. Well, if you use anti-inflammatories that are too effective in what they do, you can actually cause greater inergi- injury. So a lot of times an herbal anti-inflammatory is going to have a much more moderate effect and allow the inflammation to do its job. The other side of that, though, is inflammation itself can cause a lot of problems in the body. Chronic inflammation uh, can be linked to things like fibromyalgia. Uh, and it can be linked, honestly, to the formations of certain types of cancers. Now, that goes off into some alternative research that I can't go into today. And some people say it's true and some people say it's not true. But all we can tell you is this, that if, if you have inflammation in your body that's not supposed to be there, specifically through things like excessive autoimmune responses and things like that, that's bad. So if you have a continuous... Um, Uh, Gentle food that provides anti-inflammatory actions to the body, it's it's overall better better for your health. Uh, There's a carminative, which means it basically um, helps you to, I guess the way to say it would be better digest your food. Uh, So carminatives uh, help reduce gas, let's just put it that way. Uh, And they also do aid with the the digestive cycle, and therefore they have a calming effect uh, on the entire digestive system. Every one of the five herbs we're going to talk about cooking with today has that effect. Uh, There are also vacillators. And vacillator, if you think about the term vascular, should be really easy to figure out what that does. you think of the term cardiovascular, surely we're thinking about the blood flow here. And what vacillators do, and some very uh, aggressive vacillators do, is... Uh, work with people that have problems with cholesterol uh, or hardening of the arterial walls and things like that and the problem is they don't actually fix the cholesterol what they do is they allow the uh, blood vessels to expand a little bit by relaxing the smooth uh, muscle walls of, of the, the arterial surface so that there's a little bit more space in there well one of the problems that we have with, with the modern medicine is that wait till there's a problem, then we apply a corrective action. Well, by the time we have a, a person on a medicinal vacillator, a, a, a highly uh, toxic medication, honestly, um, the, the, the heart has already gotten really, really thick because it's had elevated blood pressure for so long. So, when you eat things, and again, none of this stuff is designed to prevent, cure, or treat disease. And I have to say that because the government would get on my back, but also because it's true. I mean, these are things that are designed to make the body run optimally, but if we are, are constantly eating things that are good for us that re- result in less lowered blood pressure by relaxing our arterial walls, we do less damage to the heart no matter what situation we're in, and what I don't mean is you can't go out and eat ho and ding-dongs, but if you are eating ho and ding tongs, you're better off with a diet that's also rich in culinary fresh herb uh, than not. You'd be better off getting rid of the ho-hos and ding-dongs, of course. And then the last one that all of these do is, uh, is a stomaic. And, uh, it shouldn't be real hard to figure out what type of the part of the body we're talking about there. It's the stomach. But a stomaic actually, look at it this way, it's kind of like conifying the stomach. So it strengthens the stomach. It makes it better able to, to digest. So that comes right up with being something that's also a hepatic, uh, something that's also a carminative. So if you start looking at all these, uh, All of these uh, herbal actions and all these medicinal actions, they all actually complement each other. If something tonifies the liver and makes the liver stronger, obviously it's going to have an effect on the entire digestive system. If we make the stomach stronger and we do a better job of digestion of food before it ever gets to a point where the liver is involved with the digestive process at all and the extraction of toxins and things like that, well, it's also going to help the liver. So all of these things interact. So of the 40 herbal actions that I talked to you about, let's say it's probably about six to eight months ago I did that series, if if you if you use all five of these herbs and then you throw in like garlic and sage and stuff like that, you're actually within your cooking you've got all forty of them. There's almost there's nothing there that's not covered. So you're basically constantly um, treating yourself by cooking with fresh herbs, and you can use dried herbs. And we'll talk about one of these that I actually believe is uh, is better dried than fresh. But the other ones I'm going to talk about all about using them fresh, and a lot of times it's not even about cooking. It's about using the herb raw at the end of a dish or it's about cooking—you know, making something that's not even really uh, cooking. Uh, cooking is not even really the right term. So let's start out with basil. I mean the first thing about basil is there's like a billion kinds of basil. That's an exaggeration, but there, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of types of basil, from small leaf to large leaf varieties, uh, varieties that are more of the sweet basil family, varieties that are more of a spicy type of basil. And they all pretty much do the same thing, and they can all pretty much be used in the same way. Um, but here's some of my favorite ways, especially with sweet basil. When I say sweet basil, I'm talking about the stuff that has a leaf, uh, that's, you know, bigger than a quarter. The big kind of almost looks like, like a salad green, uh, style of plant. And so what do you do with that? Just pluck leaves and throw them in a salad with, with the rest of your greens. Uh, it'll change a salad. It, it'll, it'll liven a salad up. Especially, I mean, think about this. A lot of us grow a lot of greens in our gardens. And then summer comes along. And all that great, you know, uh, red flame lettuce and black seeded Simpson lettuce and spinach and all these different greens that we've come to really love in our salads, they bolt and they go away. And it's – unless you live in a really northern climate, it becomes – All but impossible for you to be able to grow these things, uh, in your summertime unless you're using shade cloth or other extraordinary measures. So generally, you switch over to things that will, will provide that for us in the summer. You know, we get rid of the beet greens and we go to Swiss chard. Uh, we get rid of the lettuce and we go to New Zealand spinach. We get rid of, um, you know, any of the different greens and maybe we're relying on some Malabar spinach. Uh, maybe we're relying on, you know, just, just whatever we can get to actually grow. Again, really chards, uh, Malabar spinach, New Zealand spinach, these are the greens that I rely a lot on in, in the heat, heat, heat of the uh, midsummer. So the problem is those have a lot of bitterness to them. So if you could give them something that lifts them and gives them some sweetness like basil, all of a sudden it's much more like you're eating that summer salad and now the peppers are coming in and the tomatoes are coming in and... Peppers, tomato, and basil, you can't screw that up. So, that leads us right to the next one that I have for you with basil. And this is something that we make a lot in our household. And uh, with a very minor alteration, it goes from being something that's Italian to something that's Mexican. And, and that would be also be the alteration of removing the basil. Uh, but the way I'm going to give it to you at first is kind of the Italian slash Greek version. And that's bruschetta. And bruschetta is one of the simplest things you can make. And it's one of the most satisfying things that you can make. And here's how you make bruschetta. You get yourself some tomatoes, and romas are great for this. Um, they're traditionally a sauce or paste tomato, but they're just really exceptional for this. They're good and firm, uh, and they dice well. But you can use any tomato you want. You dice up your tomatoes and, uh, you, you know, just depending on how much you want. And you take a good handful of chopped basil, and I like to use either a really good chef's knife or a cleaver, or I have a little thing called a chopping service. It's a really thin cleaver. And chop that basil up nice and fine. Uh, mix that in with your tomatoes. Drizzle olive oil over that, a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper. Chop up, I would say, per two tomatoes. Uh, I'd say per tomato, a clove of garlic also goes in there. Per tomato, say... Uh, four leaves of sweet basil or if you're using a different type of basil with small leaves, an equivalent amount chopped up, mixed in um, and then I also like to use a little bit of sweet pepper, usually a red uh, pepper or a yellow pepper or something with some color uh, to it, green I don't really like in my bruschetta, it tastes, it tastes just great but I just like to use things like the reds and the yellows and things like that or an orange that brings a little bit of more color to it, chop those up real fine, mix that together and you want to use enough olive oil uh, that between the, the moisture from the tomatoes uh, and the olive oil itself, everything's good and damp. right? You don't want it like a soup at all. You want it like a thick, uh, thicker than your average salsa, kind of like a chunky salsa. Stir that up. You put that in the refrigerator covered. Take it out about every two hours. Don't worry if it's three or four. You can't screw this up. And stir it. And let it let it be in there. For at least four hours. So if you're making it for dinner tonight, do it around noon. By 5 o'clock, it, it's perfect. Uh, it's really great if you make it and then eat it the next day. After that, it starts to lose its freshness. So you want to eat this within, let's say, an hour after you make it to uh, a day after you make it unless you know and, and that's about it. If you can it, it loses all that wonderful freshness. But then here's how you serve it. Get yourself a nice piece of bread, a French bread like baguette or something like that, or Italian, a thin Italian loaf or something like that goes perfect with it. Slice it thin about a half inch thick. Get some olive oil, mince up some garlic, mix it in the olive oil, brush your bread with the olive oil on one side, stick that in the oven under the broiler, just 's so it's toasted on the top, leave the bottom soft. Pull that out, put your bruschetta on the toasted side, serve that. People will go nuts over it. All it is is chopped tomatoes, basil, garlic, and peppers. That's all it is on a piece of bread. If you really want to kind of push it over the top a little bit, there's two ways to do the Parmesan cheese thing. Take your Parmesan cheese, put a little sprinkling of Parmesan cheese on top of your bread before it goes under the broiler. Brown the Parmesan into the bread with the the, the garlic olive oil. Uh, and and then serve your bruschetta on top of that, or just serve a little dish of uh, of grated good parmesan on the side so people can sprinkle it directly on the top. Or you can do both, either one. But I'm telling you, if you serve that to people, especially people that are coming over to eat stuff out of your garden, you will blow their freaking minds with how good that is. And it's, you know, it's salt and pepper, and you do all of this to taste. I do not have, if you going want me to like give you a recipe more than I just gave you, I don't have it. Uh, let me go back to what Charlie Papazian says about when you're making homebrew. Relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. You're making bruschetta, relax, don't worry, have a glass of white Italian wine. Do the best you can, it'll come out good. Dump a little bit of wine in the bruschetta, you'll really push it over the edge. Uh, the next one's pesto. And pesto's the one a lot of people know about. Um, But it's not hard. I mean, pesto is one of these things that uh, it it has so much going for it, and it has so many uses beyond just – it's it's not really that it has so many uses. It has so much longevity beyond make it today, put it on the noodles today. Let me give you a basic way you make pesto. You want a big bunch of basil. I mean, like like, like the size of like a loose-leaf lettuce head of basil so like if you go buy your basil because you haven't grown enough for this yet you, you basically buy a, a, a single bunch that you get at most markets or supermarkets and it's about that much about three four five cloves of garlic depending on how big your cloves are if they're really really big about three if they're typical garlic clove size about, th- about uh about three uh, about five of them uh... you want a good uh, a good handful of pine nuts uh... so you have to buy those at a specialty shop unless you have you're lucky you live in an area where you can harvest pine nuts locally uh, about three quarters of a cup of Parmesan cheese. You want that grated, loosely packed. It's not the crap that comes in the green can. You're either gonna grate it yourself, or you're gonna get the high quality, uh, pre grated Parmesan for this. And, uh, you know, a good heavy drizzle of, uh, olive oil. Uh, you're, you're looking at like a tablespoon of that. And, you know, you chop your garlic up. You, you chop your basil leaves up. And, uh, you, you just chop it all together. And um there's a couple ways you can do get your pine nuts uh kind of crushed up. One way to do it is throw them in a blender or a food processor. You can do it with a mortar and pestle. Uh but you can basically this I mean this is the way I do it. I have a uh, I can't remember what it's called now. It's not a Vitamix. It's uh it's one of these these high-end food blenders. And I just throw it all in there. Everything I just told you in there. And I just turn it on and I blend it until it's until you can still see chunks of the basil, pieces of the uh pine nuts. Uh, and, and it's kind of some chunkiness to the cheese, some little granules of the cheese. You don't want to make it into like a, a true sauce, like a paste. It needs to look grainy. And, and that's it. And then you take that and you, you know, you make some noodles, and while they're still hot, you just, uh, you, you drain them, put them back into the pan, and, and dump your pesto on there and mix it together. But there's some interesting, simple ways that you can extend the life of pesto. You can put it in the bags so and just throw it in the freezer. And you just pull out a single serving size anytime you want and use it in, in cooking anything with noodles. Um, I've seen people actually put it in ice trays and uh, then take it out of the ice trays and then pack those in Ziploc bags. So you have small individual sizes. You can can it. But pesto's great. And it's it's the traditional use for basil. It's why I included it. But what I want to kind of say here on, on this note of, uh, of basil is I've given you traditional uses for it like uh you know bruschetta and pesto but don't limit basil to just things that are italian you can put basil into just about anything if there's tom- if there's fresh tomato in it you can put fresh basil in it. i mean that that's one one thing right there basil goes well with anything with beef basil goes well with chicken basil and one of our other things we're going to get to later rosemary those two mixed together done with chicken very 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 good um but use liberal amounts of basil The problem I have with most recipes is they all revolve around the dried spices in our spice rack instead of the fresh stuff. Those are concentrated flavors, so they use very small amounts. And a lot of times, if you're cooking something heavy with a bunch of crap in it, even though that that herb is there, you lose its flavor, you lose its contribution. When you take a big handful of fresh basil and just pitch it into a marinade or you just pitch it onto a food, it, it adds so much to it. The next time you're eating a rice dish, I don't even care what kind of rice it is, Chop up fresh basil, put a sprinkling of it across your, your rice, stir it into the rice, and eat it. You, you'll be shocked at what it'll do for something, especially if it's just like plain old white rice. So I, the big thing I want you to take away from today's show is that, you know, you can be adding these herbs into almost anything that you cook, not just the examples I'm giving you today. Let me th- let me throw a bonus in on the basil. Let's say you said, okay, the only thing you get to use, it's not in a, you know, a prep or pantry a long-term storable store we store type thing is going to be the basil everything else you got to kind of you got to pull it out of your, your pantry jack out of stuff that's actually in there I say okay well let me get some uh, a can of uh, crushed tomatoes or, or diced tomatoes or something like that and a can of canned chicken and uh, we'll mix those together and then let's give a liberal sprinkling of put those into a small casserole dish give those a little liberal sprinkling of a fresh basil. And then mix up uh, a little bit of, uh, of uh, what do you call, bisquick, or uh, if we just use flour, salt water, and make basically a biscuit dough. And then let's cover that casserole dish about an inch thick in that dough. And then let's just bake, because the stuff inside just needs to be warmed. It doesn't even need to be cooked long. And sprinkle another big liberal uh, pile of basil right into the biscuit dough. And then I'm just going to bake that until the biscuit dough is golden brown and cooked through. And and then you know now I've taken something that was really kind of bland, some canned chicken and some things like that, and I've turned it into something that's you know totally um, <laughs> something you know I'd be happy to eat that any any night of the week, and it's the type of thing that we do occasionally make when we say what can we be creative with. Okay, the next one I want to talk to you about today is dill. Um, dill is. Probably the most underused herb in America today, I believe, uh, as far as people that grow herbs in their backyard garden. And there's really two parts of dill that you want to use, either the leaf or the seed. Um, the seed has almost a caraway-type flavor with a little bit of that that sourness that dill's noted for. And the leaf has a little more of a sourness to it, but it's a kind of a mild version of it. Without the seeds, uh, I don't even know what to describe it other than it's car- caraway-like. I, uh, texture to it, and I like both of them i, I really don 't uh, differentiate between them too much. You know when I was a kid, we grew uh, tons of dill in our garden, just everywhere in between the plants. My grandmother knew it was good for bringing beneficial insects in. Once you got it going, the seeds would fall, it would reseed itself. It just came up every year. Nobody ever planted it. And whenever she was making dill pickles, she'd send me down there, and I'd cut some dill, and I'd bring it back to her. And she'd put a few sprigs of fresh dill into each jar of pickles before she put them through the, you know, the, the, the canning process. And um, she would use a big handful of the dill seeds into the, the pickle brine itself. And that was about it for dill at you know kind of the uh, the the, the Spirico, uh homestead in Pennsylvania that my grandmother and grandfather had. And I didn't really understand all the great things that you can do with dill. Let's start out with if it's fish, put dill on it. And I mean, it's just like it's it's like lemon and dill and fish is like a a trinity made in heaven that's designed to make fish good to eat. You you, you cannot mess that up. I don't care if you're doing a fried fish, a little bit of dill, in your your breading uh, the dry part of the breading or into the egg batter or the beer batter or whatever. It's going to bring out more of the pleasantness of the fish. Definitely when you're grilling or broiling fish, though, whatever else you put on it, sprinkle some fresh dill on it. So dill and fish... I mean just again uh, really really good here's one that's not in my notes but just makes me think of it now get some butter uh, and and real butter not that crappy margarine fake butter crap that they tell you is good for you that's horrible for you real good old fashioned you know butter from a cow Uh, put that into a saucepan not really a saucepan like a saute pan and, and just melt it low temperature so that it doesn't brown up too fast on you once it's all melted Add about two cloves of garlic, a nice handful, handful of dill, uh, right into that garlic, and uh, then take a, a, you know, maybe a half pound to a pound of, uh, of shrimp. Drop your shrimp in there, saute them in the butter just so they're cooked through. Bring them out, salt, pepper, a little fresh dill on top of them. It'll be a totally different experience. And how simple is that? Think about that. There's, there's nothing complex about that. It'd take you more time if you bought the shrimp with the shells on them to peel all the shells off than to actually cook the shrimp. And, and there is nothing else you need to do to make those shrimp just outstanding. Another really cool thing to do with dill is, uh, is clam dip. And here's another one we can use, at least some of our stores. A lot of us, when it comes to the eat what we store, store what we eat, and the things we can get without going to Mountain House or Yoder's or providing pantry or Thrive or what have you, uh, we, we look to kind of the aisle with the fish stuff in it. And one of the things that we can do to bring some real quality protein into our, you know, our canned food section is canned clams. A lot of people don't know what the heck do I do with canned clams. First of all, understand they're cooked. If they're in a can, they're cooked. So you don't really have to do much with them to go ahead and use them. So we can back up and go do basil, right? Let's go back to basil with the canned clams. We take the canned clams. We just just, just make this as simple as we possibly can. Take the canned clams, open them, juice them all, throw them into a pan, okay? Put in about a half a pound of butter, do about, which would be a half a pound, a whole stick of butter, melt that down big old handful of fresh uh, uh, basil after the butter's melted about a cup of white wine stir that up simmer it just long enough probably to like a a light simmer boil simmer that for about I would say about two minutes I just kind of know when it's done to blend the flavors together, cook the alcohol off the wine big plate of linguine spoon it over your linguine fresh basil, whole fresh basil leaves on top, three or four on each plate, boom, you know, it's it's, it's, it's just awesome, but now we take the same thing, uh, and, and we uh, would we, we, we say, now what are we going to do with the clams and do something with the dill, well, uh, this won't be all from your preps, because some of the stuff has to be refrigerated, but uh, most people would have cream cheese and, uh, what do you call it, uh, mayonnaise in the household, so use an eight ounce cube of cream cheese, about a half pound of cream cheese. To uh, a, a half a cup of mayo And a can of clams This time drain the uh, the juices off And mix that together Put in a good, uh, you know, again, fresh dill So when you're using Here's dried herbs for this You have to cut way back And I'm talking about fresh herbs today About a half a handful of fresh dill And you could add some salt, some pepper Oregano goes nicely in there But a very, very small pinch of fresh oregano Even a little bit of basil But the main star of this Is the dill and the clams Blend that together, and when I say blend, I just mean you can hand-mix this, uh, cover it, put it in the refrigerator, give it at least an hour, serve that with crackers or something. Now I'm using my fresh herbs, I'm using one of my preps, I'm using things that are in most Americans' refrigerators. If you're worried about the fat, you can use a light cream cheese, a low-fat mayo, whatever, but... This would be a big hit at any party. Anytime you have people coming over for the summer or something, you don't want to serve a lot of hot food, you've got bruschetta over here with the toasted bread, you've got your uh, clam dip over here with some crackers and some other things to go with it. Uh, the clam dip's actually really good. You've got a bunch of green peppers, you don't know what to do with them all. Cut them up into bite-sized pieces, about you double bite-sized piece, you know, so you can grab a piece and use it. Set those with the clam dip. Crazy as it sounds, the green peppers dipped in there, just awesome. Next one is a, a basic yogurt dill dressing. And this is something my grandmother, this is one of the few things my grandmother did with dill. Uh, even though she was from the Ukraine, this is a very Greek thing. Um, but it's very, very simple, and it's good on salad. But it's really good, you just slice cucumbers really thin. You, you cover them in this, you let them sit in the refrigerator for about an hour, and then you eat them. So here's how you make it. You want to use a good Greek yogurt. Um, plain, uh, lo- low fats best for this. Uh, Not because I'm so much concerned about the fat. It just comes out better. But Not a a skim, but a low-fat Greek-style yogurt, a cup of it. Uh, About three or four cloves of garlic. Most people would use less. I'll use more because I love the garlic. Uh, You want to use about, I would say, once it's chopped up, your dill, you want to use about three tablespoons of fresh dill. If you're using a dried dill, you're looking at more like um, a half a teaspoon uh, because it's going to reabsorb and be so concentrated. Try to do this with fresh dildo uh, at least once. Get a lemon, a small lemon, and get a zester or a very very fine grater and zest the lemon. That means you're taking off the yellow part of the lemon but leaving the white part of the lemon behind. Cut the lemon in half, squeeze the lemon into uh, into the mix. Uh, then you add about a half a teaspoon of salt, salt to taste, pepper to taste. Whisk that up, mix it up. It's uh, really good to do this like in a jar where you can just give it a good shake and keep it in that jar and then pour it over. Cover it, throw it in the refrigerator, give it an hour. Uh, that's good on anything. It's also good as a dipping sauce. If you want to make it a little bit, um, a little bit thinner so it's more of a drizzle type thing, you can add some olive oil to it, a lot of people make it with olive oil but made like that, it's not just good mixed with the cucumbers, and the cucumbers what will have, you slice your cucumbers, you mix that all together with your cucumbers, the moisture that comes out of the cucumbers, the salt will draw some of the moisture, the yogurt will draw some of the moisture will thin it for you, and it'll be good on cucumbers, but if you let it set up and put it like in a bowl and use it as a dipping sauce like carrot sticks, celery sticks and stuff like that, people will actually want to eat that, so those of you that have like these big barbecues and all this junk food Food out there and you put the vegetable plate out there because you feel like you need to provide that and then very few people eat it if you put this with it uh if you get them to try it people will eat it uh slice peppers uh slice uh, celery things like that with this uh and obviously cucumber slices here's one that almost nobody does and it's uh it's kind of shocking that nobody really eats zucchini this way but especially your young zucchinis Slice them and eat them raw with this. It is very good. Lightly steamed and then add this while, you know, so you cook a zucchini to the point where it's like half of what most people do, so it's still got some crispness to it. So this is like if you put like uh, some olive oil in the bottom of a skillet. And you threw the zucchini in there, literally by the time you switched it, or if it's a good hot skillet, switched it around once, flipped it over once, it would be done. It's just as soon as it's warmed through, and then drizzle this stuff over it, and then add a little fresh dill to the top of that. Just dynamite. I mean, these, you know, all of this is stuff that I'm adding as I go, because I'm just remembering that, you know, I've done it in the past. And that's the big thing I want you to understand with these things is. Don't lock yourself the recipes. Just if you're cooking and you, you, you know the taste of something and then you know the taste of your herb and you think those two tastes will complement each other, well, throw it in there. If you're not comfortable throwing it in there, pull a little bit of a aside, chop up a little bit of your fresh herb, eat a spoonful of it with some fresh herb on it. See how the flavors complement each other. If it's too much that way, then it, you know, back it off and sample the things. Don't, when you're cooking, guys, I, I'm big on recipes for people to get confidence and to learn certain things go together. I mean, if we didn't have recipes, then a lot of people wouldn't know Do you put pork and apples together. And, and it's a wonderful combination, and if you didn't have a recipe, you wouldn't know that. But once you know pork and apples go together, there's all kinds of things that we can do. You know, we can take a, a piece of, uh, of pork steak, you know, a low-end cut of pork steak. And we can, we can cut, if it's got bone, we can cut it off the bone and we can pound it, almost like we're making something like a, uh, like a chicken fried steak or something like that. Uh, we can cut some apples up, lay them on the inside of that. We can give that uh, some, you know, just to bring another herb up, a little bit of tarragon, a little bit of rosemary, uh, and a little bit of basil. We can roll that up uh, and, and put it together with some bacon on the outside, throw it on the grill and grill it. Uh, that's not a recipe. I don't. Where did that come from? That came in my head like right now. I, I've actually never cooked that. I will bet you a million dollars it's good. Uh, and it, especially if I were to put a sprinkling of brown sugar on the apples before I rolled it up, and then I were to go out and I were to take, let's say, the brown sugar, mix that with a little bit of olive oil, a little fresh basil, uh, a little fresh dill. Uh, and, and, and uh, a little fresh oregano in that baste with the brown sugar in the oil. And as I'm cooking that on the grill, uh, occasionally brush it and give it a glaze of the brown sugar and the herbs. And then that apple's in the middle, and I've got the crisp of the bacon and the tenderness of the pork, and all of that's cooked together. And since so I pounded it thin, it cooks through nice and easy, and the little apple cubes inside there are just soft enough that by the time I cut it open, they're almost like an apple sauce mixed in. with. I mean, you see what I'm saying? You do not have to, if I just stuck the recipes, I wouldn't have given you that one right there. Uh, and, and because I know that all those flavors blend, I, I don't have to ever have even cooked it to know that if you cook that tonight, you're going you're gonna to email me tomorrow and say that was amazing. You know, that was fabulous. Maybe, maybe you'll have some technique you need to work on. Like you didn't pound it right, you didn't get it stretched right, it was a little more complicated than it sounded. But if you get the techniques right and you put those flavors together, they're going to work. That's, that's what I want you to take away from this. So let's move on to another one, oregano. Oregano is one of the all-time great healing herbs. Uh, if you were around in the days of, uh, like, Socrates, and you were looking for something that would... Uh, help with a a myriad of health conditions. One of the things that they would recommend would have been oregano and just put oregano, fresh oregano in everything you eat. And it didn't matter what was wrong, uh, oregano helps with that and as we look at it today with all of the herbal actions that I gave you at the beginning it turns out that that oregano actually does help with everything. And, And let me explain how something like an oregano or a thyme or a basil or any of these herbs by having these herbal actions, can really help with anything. I don't care what your illness is, you're going to be eating food. And your, eat, your food is your fuel, like, like gas to a car. And, but it's not that simple. The body's far more complex than a car. And the food needs to have certain nutrients extracted from it certain, uh, you know, certain, uh, what are the micro and macro nutrients, uh, certain vitamins, certain minerals if the digestive system is working optimally, then the body is what actually fights disease, which actually rectifies illnesses, not drugs. What a drug does is, if let's say if it's an antibiotic and there's an infection, a bacterial infection, the antibiotic reduces the population of the bacterial infection by directly killing it, kind of like an insecticide, hopefully to the point where there's so little of it left that the body and what's left of its immune system after you've suppressed the good bacteria can come in and finish the job. But it's always the body that heals itself. And that's why people that have uh, compromised immune systems might have to live like the bubble boy, right? It has to live in a bubble. doesn't matter how much penicillin or ampicillin or ethromycin you give them. A minor bacterial infection can kill them because his own body can't take over and do the job. When we optimize digestion, when we optimize our body's Functioning, then all of the things that our bodies do to keep us healthy and to, and to rectify illnesses and to balance the system work better. So that's how, once you say something like, no matter what it is, include oregano in your diet and it can help with it. It's you cannot be thinking like modern medicine if you uh, if you if you want to actually uh, have an effect on that, you have to be thinking more along the lines of the long term. And that's where these these ancient physicians turn out to be absolutely correct when they say something like, no matter what else, that's oregano to your diet, and it'll improve it. When we think of oregano, though, we think automatically of Italy. But understand that uh, uh, oregano goes uh, much deeper than Italy. Uh, It's it's very, very highly used in Greek cooking as well, and you can do just about anything with it. And it, it does have a very distinctive flavor. It can be overused, it's hard to overuse parsley, it's hard to overuse dill, it's hard to overuse uh, basil, you can overuse oregano. So, the way that you use oregano, fresh or dried, and especially dried, it's really easy to go overboard with the dried oregano, too much flavor, is to add it, taste it, add it until you get it where you want it, to where you can taste the contribution, but it's not overpowering. But let me give you a really simple thing to do with oregano that will let you take it into all your cooking, where it's almost impossible to overdo it because of the way that you're applying it. Get yourself a bottle or a jar. Chop up some fresh oregano. I'd say about two tablespoons. Uh, then tra- chop up about uh, I would say uh, four tablespoons of basil. So two tablespoons. So two let me go in parts. Two parts oregano to four part basil. Then chop up about five to six cloves of garlic. Put that all into a bottle or a jar. Add in about five or six whole black peppercorns. Now fill the jar up with uh, olive oil. Seal the jar. Give it a good shake. Leave it at least a day. The longer is better. Store it in an area with lower temperatures, a dark area, so that your olive oil doesn't go rancid on you. Uh, Three to four days to a week, that oil is really taking the flavor of those herbs up. Now, we can do a lot of things with that oil. We can do this through the simple old... Break bread, Italian style thing. Dump that into a little dish. Add a little fresh cracked uh, black pepper, a little fresh oregano to the top of it, and dip bread in it. And that's you know like your Italian butter. It's actually fabulous. The bruschetta I gave you earlier, if you have the time and you make this oil, and you use that instead of just plain olive oil when you brush your uh, brush your bread before you put it in a broiler, fantastic. But here's what else you can do with this. Just about any meat you would ever make, this is going to make a good glaze for it. So when you're, when you're cooking something like a chicken and you don't want to go through a marinade and all this, and it's just a good quality piece of chicken and especially like your darker meats that you can leave on the grill longer without drying them out, your legs, your thighs, brush the skin with this and, and roast the skin over a good solid heat until the skin crisps and keep brushing it with this. It's absolutely fabulous. You can use this oil in just about anything that you would use oil in, to cook with and it'll liven up flavor. You're sautéing fresh vegetables. Let's say you're going to do a little bit of uh, zucchini, a little bit of green pepper, uh, maybe some green beans. You're going to do that as a side vegetable with your main meal. Instead of doing it with butter, instead of doing it with Crisco or whatever, just use this oil when you do it. A little bit of fresh herbs on top of them when you're done. You start to see that this doesn't have to be complicated. We don't have to go through these huge processes. And I don't like complicated recipes because you don't do it. You, maybe it's something you do once a month and it's for a special occasion or the kids really like it or dad really likes it, so mom makes it or dad makes it for mom or whatever, and that's fine. But for day-to-day cooking, if you're going to get this stuff involved, you've got to just do it. You've got to just grab it and toss it in there. Uh, so another way to do that is the, the great thing about oregano is because it's got so much character to it, it lifts stuff. So that can of Hunt spaghetti sauce or that jar of ragu or whatever that's in your stores, that you put on the, you know, mom's tired, she doesn't feel like cooking today, so we break out the spaghetti, we, we boil some noodles, that takes five minutes, we strain them. Uh, when you're boiling your noodles, folks, here's, here's your key to making your noodles perfect, uh, come out perfect and not stick together. About two teaspoons of olive oil, you don't have to use your extra virgin, just your cheap olive oil in the water while it's boiling. It'll help the noodles from getting too starchy and sticking together. So we take our, and then a, a good tablespoon of sea salt. That goes in our water. We boil our noodles. We throw them to the side. And then maybe, maybe we brown some hamburger meat or some sausage. Maybe we don't. But we're dumping ragu on it either with meat or by itself onto that spaghetti. Here, kids eat it. Mom's tired. Dad's tired. That's what's for dinner tonight. And it's, it tastes processed, right? It's not that it's bad. you know. If it's, if it's Chef Keith's uh, special sauces that are organic, it's got a lot more flavor to it all. But even that, it came out of a jar. Even if it's the stuff you made. Right, It's your own stuff you're very, very proud of that comes out of your pantry that you dump on there. No matter what it is, it's been through the canning process. It's been through immense amounts of heat. A lot of the flavors of the herbs, therefore, are cooked into the sauce, and that's good. But they're not there. They're not up front. You don't taste them. You chop up some oregano and some basil. And you right, at the, right when the sauce is warmed... You take it off the heat, you sprinkle a good liberal sprinkling of that on there, you mix that together, you put that on your uh, on your plate, and a little bit of fresh oregano and basil, just a little spring, little little pinch of each, right on the top, still green so it can be seen. You put the same food in front of your family, and it's going to have a much better reception, I promise you. Um, Here's another one. This is an interesting use. Uh, I'm big on sausage and I love to grow zucchini. So what about a zucchini sausage soup uh, that incorporates oregano? Let me give you that one right here. So here's what you're going to need to make this. You need about two pounds of zucchini and cut them into half inch pieces. Uh, Get about a pound of Italian sausage. You can use hot or sweet. If it's just ground, you can just use it as it is. If it's in casings, you're probably better off removing the casings and just slicing it up. Uh, get a couple cups of celery, one big white onion, chop that up. Uh, you want a, a, about two quarts of canned tomatoes for this, uh, so that can come right out of your preps. About two teaspoons of salt, and then you're going to want to use, if you're going to use dried oregano, you're going to use about a teaspoon, and if you use fresh oregano, you're going to want to use about I'd say about two tablespoons of fresh oregano for this, and uh, also add some basil to this definitely, uh, and a few cloves of garlic. And uh, you can use garlic powder, dehydrated garlic, but fresh garlic's always best. And a couple green peppers, and cut those up into about half-inch pieces. So then, take your sausage, brown it. So you're gonna throw that in the bottom of your pan and brown it, and drain off the fat. At this point, take a little bit of red wine. Uh, or, or something else if you don't want to use wine. But those of you that are non-alcohol drinkers, get a good bottle of red wine, a good bottle of white wine. Get two or three of them. Put them in a the storage house. Use them for cooking. When you cook with these things, the alcohol cooks off. So it's it's a cooking ingredient, not a drink that you're imbibing with. And, and don't take that away from your arsenal as a cook. Um, there's not a great chef out there that doesn't cook with wine from time to time, or beer. So even a couple nice beers... Uh, if you have guests that ever want one, you can give them one uh, and, and always have them for cooking. But red wine is going to be great to do what's called deglaze. When you brown that sausage, and if you skip this part, it's not really going to come up for you the way that it should. There's going to be little pieces of meat all over the bottom of the uh, uh, pan. And when you dump the red wine in there, it's going to cause it to release and it's going to come into what you're cooking. So at that point, throw your celery and your onions in there and, and cook them for about 10 minutes. Then go ahead and uh, add your zucchini, and uh, at, at that point add about, I would say, about two cups of chicken stock or vegetable stock, and then simmer that uh, for about maybe ten more minutes. Then um, then, then you're going to add, uh, at the end, the last thing I want you to add is your zucchini, uh, chopped up in small pieces, and just let it warm through, and that's your soup. And that way, your zucchini's not cooked into a mush. There's another way to do this, and the way that's traditionally done, they put the zucchini in right up front. And if you put the zucchini in right up front, it basically cooks and it becomes part of your flavoring. I like the little zucchini bits in there. Uh, and I like, so I like to add to the zucchini and the peppers. You know, the peppers maybe 10 minutes before it's done, the zucchini right at the end. Uh, and then, you know, this is one of those things where if you get a little bit of fresh oregano, basil, and rosemary, and r- rosemary is the one I like to use dried. So dried rosemary, crumbled rosemary, fresh oregano, fresh basil, a little sprinkle of that over the bowl when you serve it, then you've got something a little bit more, a little bit more lifted for you, I guess you would say. Uh, it brings the flavors to the front, just like salt does. So let's go on to the next uh, herb, rosemary. And as I just mentioned, I like to use rosemary, Um, in a dried state. I don't like to use fresh rosemary. Um, I'll use it once in a while, but I'll tell you why. It's easier to work with when it's dried. It doesn't get sappy and stick to your fingers. And the real flavor profile of the rosemary seems to come through better with the dried needles, where if you overuse fresh rosemary, you almost get a pine tree flavor, which I'm not real, real happy with. So especially like things like I'll do uh, winter squashes. And I'll just do a baked winter squash with a little salt, pepper, olive oil, and sprinkle a little rosemary on top of there. When you use the fresh rosemary needles, <coughs> it almost tastes like there's a Christmas tree in the squash. When you use the dried rosemary needles, you get that that more mild taste of the rosemary. So it's why I prefer the dried. Uh, but one of the great things you can do with rosemary is you can do often uh, awesome breads. You know, you can make up a basic uh, you know bread dough recipe. <coughs> I do like a trip uh, traditional Italian focaccia, uh, but I'm not big on the kneading of the breads and stuff like that. I like to do simple breads like Irish soda bread and beer bread. But let me give you let me give you my basic beer bread recipe. I've done this in the past, but I haven't talked about it for a while. So I'll give you your foundation. Your foundation for beer bread: three cups of flour, um, one tablespoon of sugar, one tablespoon of baking powder. Make sure it's good fresh baking powder, not baking soda. Baking powder, a teaspoon of salt and uh 12 ounces of beer and you mix that you don't need it and you don't mix it real heavy you don't want to pound the hell out of it you want to just mix it till everything's wet uh and you bake that in an oven at uh 375 and you're going to do that for, depending on your oven, because some ovens are different, elevations are different, 45 minutes to an hour. Once you do it once or twice, you'll know your oven. You'll make sure it's cooked all the way through. You give it time to cool. Some of the stuff in the middle might be a little bit moist, but it'll cook through. Uh, even once you take it out of the oven, it'll continue to cook a little bit because the bread's so hot. Um, and once you've got that, if you take um, about, I'd say, three to four teaspoons, which is about a tablespoon and a little bit more, of... Uh, crushed up dried rosemary and you mix that in and uh, a little bit of fresh basil with that and then when you're done with it, give a good sprinkling of rosemary on the top so you've got to put it in your bread pan now where you're going to bake it and you sprinkle that on the top and it bakes into the top and then you take that beer bread and you slice it up. Let it cool, even though it's tempting to go ahead and cut it right away. Let it cool. Uh, it can be warm, but don't cut it when it's steaming hot. It'll fall apart. It won't be finished right. Let it cool a little bit. Slice that, and then take that herb oil that I taught you how to make. Dip that in that herb oil. Serve that with a couple of ice cold beers. Uh, especially uh, we get it to, when we get into the cooler times of the year, as you're into that fall garden, September, October. Take a warm loaf of bread like that outside with some friends, onto the patio, sit down, look at your garden coming to fruition into the fall, eat that bread with the fresh rosemary, with the herb oil, with a little bit of cracked pepper in it, and you almost don't eat anything else. You really don't. If you still got um, some bruschetta, whip that up, and I'm a carnivore, but I, that could be a meal for me for one night anyway. I mean, that that is uh, It's just a, a great social food. And it's a simple food, and it's dirt cheap. What, what is what is the cost of three cups of flour, especially if you store wheat and you're grinding it and you're doing it yourself out of raw wheat? Um, what is the cost of a single beer? Right, you don't have to have a really high-quality beer to do this with. When you're doing your beer breads, stay away from anything with a lot of hop character. It's too much, unless it's a heavier bread. It'll come through too much for you. Take that same bread that I just gave you. When you sprinkle your... Uh, your your rosemary on it, add a good sprinkling of uh, Parmesan cheese to the top of it. Or wait till it comes out when it's still hot, pop it out of the pan, set it on the cooling rack, give it a sprinkling of Parmesan on the top of it. Um, it, it, These are simple things, and they're, they're very inexpensive, they're very easy to do, and your family will think you're a genius, your friends will think you're a genius, and you can spread the word about prepping because we're using the stuff from our gardens and we're using the stuff from our preps when we're doing this stuff so you know, I'm trying to make this uh, even though it sounds like Jack cooking hour still tie back into the facts that we're preppers we're modern survivalists um, another one with rosemary and this is one of these things that when you make this you'll wonder why you ever ate a french fry in your life um, you'll never want to do anything with a potato again for at least a couple weeks until you actually grow tired of this and you'll wonder why something so simple is something why somebody does other people don't do it. since it's so simple, and you can do this with like a russet potato. You can do it with a red skin. You can do it with a Yukon Gold. You can do it with anything you want. If they're big potatoes, cut them into um, I would say like a double bite-sized piece. If they're small potatoes, down to a double bite-sized potato, you can use them whole. Get a pot of boiling water with salt. Get it, go you know and put your potatoes in there. Boil your potatoes about. 10 minutes. You're going to parboil them. You don't want them soft. You want them where they really just begin to become tender with a fork. Drain them and let them cool. Right? If you don't let them cool, this isn't going to work as well for you. Even if they're small potatoes, you're probably better off cutting them in half. You want some of the potato with a peel and some of it with the potato exposed. All right. Put those into a, a, a pan and brush them or drizzle them with olive oil. Sprinkle them with sea salt black pepper, and a, a good coating so that every potato has a, a some on it of, of crushed up dried uh, rosemary. Bake them until they start to brown just a little bit. By the time they've a little bit, they'll be done. They'll be crisp on the outside, they'll be fluffy and moist on the inside, and if you just put them in the oven and don't do the parboiling first, they'll be okay, they'll never be the same. This is one of these things Neil, Neil uh, Franklin taught me. Uh, the first time I did it, I was like, oh, my God. You know, why haven't I been doing this my whole life? Now I've got something boring like a potato, and I've just got it popping from that oil, from the browning, from the the, 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 the textures. And that's one of the things that makes this thing so good. The The skin... <clears throat> With the olive oil, it almost oven-fries a little bit, so the skin gets a little bit of a crispness to it. The outside of the potato gets that not-as-quite-as-crisp, browned thing going on. The potato is is a little bit cooked when you first do this, so it takes in some of the oil, and that helps retain the moisture. The oil is drenched in the, the rosemary, or the rosemary is drenched in the oil, so it brings some of the rosemary flavor into the potato, The rosemary's on the outside of the potato, the sea salt's out there, the black pepper's out there, and it's just fabulous. And there's nothing wrong with when you serve it, a little bit more rosemary, a little bit more salt and pepper on it. Um, And, and, and again, how simplistic is this? I don't have to peel the potato. Uh, e- even though I'm using two pans, the one I boiled the potatoes in, it was boiling water and potatoes, and it's three seconds to wash it, dry it, put it away. Um, the pan you do the roasting in, you can line the bottom of that with aluminum foil. The way you do that dish, then it's pull the foil out and throw it away. I mean... And and the way to really get the most out of these potatoes and get them to crisp up a little bit is use a, a roasting rack so that there's a little bit of airflow underneath the potatoes. You don't have to do that, but you'll get better results if you do that. You can do potatoes like this on the grill. You can just throw them, uh, if they're big enough, you can just put, you can take, uh, bigger pieces of potato, do the same thing. Uh, it's easier when you're doing that then to put some rosemary right in the oil and, and brush the potatoes, put them oil side down, brush the other side, get some, uh, some rosemary to the side, sprinkle them, and do them on the grill. And easier ways to get one of those perforated pans where you can just kind of mix them around like you're sauteing them and do those on the grill. Uh, if you're gonna do them on the grill, it, one of the great times to do them on a grill would be when you decide i 'm not going to fire the gas grill up today i 'm going to fire up the charcoal grill and i 'm going to get some of that smoky hickory or mesquite flavor into those with that that 's awesome so those can go on the side of anything it 's very very Italianish uh, way to do potatoes very very traditional way to do potatoes, but a nice piece of uh, bacon-wrapped venison loin cooked medium with those potatoes on the side, and some roasted vegetables, a little salad made out of your cucumbers with the Greek yogurt uh, stuff that I told you how to make. Uh, it's all simple. It's, uh, it's less than 30 minutes of prep time. It's all stuff that comes from the garden and from the herb garden and from the woods. Uh, you take those potatoes, a little bit of uh, catfish that you've caught uh, from your local lake or stream, fillet the catfish, Brush it with butter and garlic, sprinkle it with dill, put that on your grill, grill it, you know, uh, about 10 minutes per inch on fish. So if it's a half inch fillet, only about five minutes overheat. You don't want to overcook your fish Um, and and put that on the side of a set of potatoes like that. Uh, Guys, you know, I'm getting hungry here explaining this. And again, now we're all things that are from the pantry, the garden, or from the wild. Very, very simple. No one has to have a degree in culinary sciences. No one has to have top end cooking equipment to pull this off uh, you You will learn certain techniques like getting your pants to the right temperature and and if you 're wrapping things up you know that all comes with time and experience. But if you start doing this stuff you 'll find that, that, that these are things that anybody can learn to do and they 're scalable uh, If you live alone and you think this is too much work you know, it 's still thirty minutes to prepare. You can make. The, the same amount and put half away for lunch tomorrow. You can make a smaller amount just for yourself. Uh, it, it's because it's not complex. Because it's not let it marinate for 52 years or, you know, do a head spin and wait for the sun to align with the moon and go to the store and buy these 17 exotic ingredients. It's something you can do any day. Everything that I'm telling you about here, uh, you know, with the exception of certain ingredients that have to be kept fresh, if you came over to my house, I could make for you tomorrow. And, uh, most of the, most of them, even if they require some fresh ingredients, you know, we almost always have yogurt in the house. We, we almost always have, you know, you know, soy sauce and Worcester sauce and things like that that can be used for some things I'm gonna give you in a minute. So, Anybody can, anybody can do this stuff is what I'm guess, I'm getting at. Uh, let me give you another one. Uh, lamb is one of my favorite things to eat. Of all the domestic meats, it's the closest to things like venison and elk to me. And that's part of why I like it. But it's got the kind of a little bit of a greasy character and more fat than a wild game does. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. I've got a little bit of that, that venison character and I've got the, 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 the more, uh, marbled effect of the meat that, you know, traditional, uh, cattle have. And so I love lamb. Uh, Rosemary and lamb were like one of those things that were destined to come together. But here's a real, real simple way to do lamb. Take your lamb and a little bit of salt and pepper, a little bit of fresh garlic, rub that into your lamb. Just set it to the side. Now, you're going to make up a little bit different of an oil than the one that I gave you already. All you're going to do for your oil is you're going to take your pepper grinder, you can use ground pepper if you want to, but it's better to grind your own, and grind about, uh, about a teaspoon to two teaspoons of black pepper, and, and a, a good pile of, uh, of rosemary. It's hard for me to give you measurements on this, but I'd say at least a tablespoon of dried, crushed up rosemary, and then enough olive oil that you'll be able to baste whatever amount of lamb you're doing a few times. Then, when you go to put your lamb on the grill, Take a little bit more rosemary, uh, and, and at, right before you put it on the grill, kind of grind it up until it's almost like a powder in your fingertips, and rub it into the lamb that you've already had the other ingredients on. Rub it on one side put it on the grill, and then just take your fingers and rub it on the other side. And now brush it with that oil and just cook it till it's just a little bit of pink left in it. I, people that don't like lamb generally have eaten it when it's well done because they think it needs to be well done. Lamb needs to be pink to going toward red to really be good, to, for the flavor to really come out of it. That's it. That's the whole thing on, on the lamb. So and I call that uh, the rosemary pepper lamb. And uh, that's... You know, that's, that's all it needs to be. And I, I want you to keep thinking about being simple with this stuff. The last one is parsley today. And I think parsley is, um, you know, up there with dill of the most underrated herbs that are out there. Most people see parsley as that little green sprig of thing that nobody eats that they put on the side of your plate to make the plate look pretty. Parsley actually has a wonderful flavor. It really does. And it's very good in soups and stews. You can chop it up and include it in there. But even with that, when, when people do it, one of the things that they have a tendency to do with parsley is to see the the the, uh, the stalks because they're tough. Is you know that's for your compost pile. So we cut that nice big green part off. And there's two main types of parsley. There's a flat leaf and the moss curled leaf. Uh, that it's a more traditional garnish style. I like both, but I think there's more flavor in the curled type of parsley. Flat leaf is is pretty good stuff too, though. It's more of a traditional Italian herb. Uh, but either one you can do this with. You take those stalks chopped them really really fine and with soups and stews they cook so long that all that great parsley flavor goes in there a lot of people do stuff with parsley root too I've never been big on the parsley root I probably should be because a lot of that flavor's in there as well but your stalks in any soup or stew is going to be really good uh, next this is the only one I got from TV or the internet and uh, I, I'm almost ashamed to say where I learned it, but my wife watches Rachel Ray, and I think that like I can't stand her. I really can't. I can't stand her show. I can't stand the New Jersey accent. I can't stand the idiotic audience that she's like. And I'm gonna put a cup of cheese in her, and they all all cheer. But I, I watched her make this one thing, and I thought, oh, I, I got to try that, and it, it was pretty good. You take a whole chicken and uh, you split the backbone, and you butterfly it flat. So what I'm talking about is you take your chicken, you have it sitting there like it's a turkey for Thanksgiving, you're going to stuff you know, breadcrumbs into it to stuff it. Flip it over on its back and cut it right down the backbone, and then flatten it. So you're looking down at it now. You've got the legs and the wings up and the back of the chicken down. You take your fingers and or a knife if you need to, and pry all the skin. Don't tear the skin. Pry all the skin up. Uh, a little bit, so you can get your hands all the way down to the bottom of the breast, all the way down into the thighs and into the drumsticks. And then you're gonna uh, you're gonna make the the stuffing that goes in here, which is gonna be made with uh, pancetta and uh, ricotta cheese along with parsley. And uh, I'm actually gonna give me a second here. I'm gonna pull up the actual recipe, so I give it to you uh, off her website the way she said to do it. Actually, I'll give you the condensed version, and she even makes the potatoes I told you about with this, uh, earlier with the rosemary potatoes, but that's, uh, that's not Rachel Ray, that's, uh, a million chefs make that one. Um, but, uh, th- this is what you're gonna need for the basic, uh, for the chicken thing. Extra virgin olive oil, uh, about three p- uh, cloves of garlic peeled, uh, and, uh, a few sprigs of rosemary. Uh, One chicken, four to five pounds. About a third of a pound of pancetta, which is an Italian hand. You can use bacon if you don't have pancetta. Some sliced shallots, um, a small chili pepper, a jalapeno, a fresno, anything like that will work. One bunch of parsley. She used flat leaf, Italian for hers, which is probably traditional for this dish. I used the moss curled. I I thought it was really, really good, and I would actually prefer that. About a cup and a half of um, ricotta cheese. And about a half a cup of grated uh, Parmesan cheese. And uh, she used a little bit of nutmeg with this. I'm going to leave this out. The star here is the parsley. The parsley and the cheese together. And basically, the the, the simple thing is you do what I said to do with the chicken. I'll put a link to this so you can see her complicated way to do it. But I'm going to tell you how I did it. I took the I I used bacon with mine because we didn't have any pancetta at the local store when I went there. So I I cooked up some bacon. And into the bacon grease, I threw the garlic uh, cloves and a chili pepper. And I sauteed that a little bit. Then I took the whole uh, bunch of the parsley, and I just sautéed the parsley for maybe about a minute. And then I took that off the heat, and then I spooned in the cup and a half of the ricotta cheese. And I mixed that all up together. And then you take the chicken that's laying flat on a roasting pan. And you you push that mixture in between the skin and the chicken. So it's stuffed, but it's not stuffed in a traditional way that you think of stuffing a chicken into the body cavity. It's stuffed between the chicken and the skin. And you're using a whole bunch of, uh, of parsley for this. And again, when I say bunch, I don't mean a lot. I mean, when you go to the market and you buy it in a bunch, about that much. So if it comes from your backyard, about that much. If you're buying it in a market, a bunch like that. You're going to chop that really, really fine. She did hers in a food processor. I think it's too much. I think it takes away too much of the parsley. Character it turns it more into like a, a parsley paste. Uh, so what I do is I take my, uh, my, my meat cleaver, uh, get it good and good and sharp on the butcher steel, and just chop it really, really fine. And then I just folded that together and pushed that in It does make a bit of a mess. It's something you want to do, like, over the sink, like put your cutting board uh, across the span of your sink or whatever. You're going to get it all over your hands. Uh, but work it down into the skin of the chicken. And then what you want to do is uh, set your oven to, uh, let me actually check that. That's actually part of the instructions I followed. She said to do it at 425, and you put the excess mixture, you rub it on top of the chicken, too. And, uh... Cover the chicken with loosely with foil. Do it for 30 minutes at 425. Pull the foil off. Do it for 30 more minutes. That way the skin will crisp, but it won't over-crisp for you. What I found is that cooking an average-sized chicken for one hour at that temperature prepared this way, there was still some red around some of the bones. So I would increase the cooking time from an hour to about 70 minutes. Uh, so an hour and ten, I think, would get you a better result. But that was fabulous. And, 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 I, you know, I really am not big on a lot of these, uh, these y- yahoos on these TV shows, uh, with all of this excess stuff. Like Rachel Ray, I was talking about, my wife watched her all the time, and it, the woman will put cheese on cheese, it, 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 because the audience applauds when they turn the sign on uh, for the cheese, I guess. It's like it's like the star of the show, and I usually think it's too much cheese, but the cheese, the way she did this, this was uh, pretty, pretty freaking fabulous, and it's a great way to use parsley that I think otherwise uh, people wouldn't realize that parsley can be kind of the star along with the main dish. Now I'm going to give you the famous smear chicken. This is the one that when people have been to some of the get-togethers and all I've been to, that people rave about. This is the one that people go, how, how the hell did you make that? This is so simple. And, uh, I, I make jokes and say it's a secret recipe. I'll share this with anybody. It's not a big secret. Uh, you get yourself a, about a, you know, a, a good sized mason jar. Like, I guess a quart mason jar. And chop up a big, like, double handful size uh, pile of parsley. Again, really, really finely chopped. Throw that in your mason jar. Same thing with basil. So this is going to bring some of these other herbs together. So a big double handful size clump of basil into the jar. Five to ten jalapenos depending on size. Uh, It's not going to get too hot because of the way this is going to be cooked. So you can leave the seeds. If you're really worried about the heat, you can de-seed them and do it. But finely chopped jalapenos into the jar. Now, fill the jar Again, now the, the the materials taking up some space. So you got to kind of eyeball this. Fill the jar about halfway with um, with soy sauce. Then add to that about one inch of Worcestershire. So put enough Worcestershire to bring the level up another inch. Now fill the jar all the way up with beer. Put the lid on it tightly because the beer is going to foam up when you do this. Turn it up and don't shake it. Turn it up and down a couple times. Throw that in your refrigerator. Over the next day. Every once in a while, go into your refrigerator, turn it up and down a few times. When you open it, obviously make sure that the beer hasn't created too much pressure. It doesn't foam up on you and, and overflow. That, ha- that has got to sit in your refrigerator for a day, at least. This is a, this is a multi-day process to make this chicken. Then... Put your chicken into Ziploc bags or some type of bag because you want to make this marinade go as far as possible. And if you do it in a bowl, you're going to use more marinade than you really need to do because the amount I just gave you makes a significant amount of chicken. You're going to want to make a lot of it even if you don't have a lot of people coming over because you'll eat it, you'll eat it left over, what have you. Marinate the chicken in that and grill. And that's, that's the whole thing. Now, there's a couple ways to step this up. One is you take before you put the chicken into marinade, and then you need to use a bowl or something so the toothpicks uh, don't uh, put holes in your your marinating bag. So now you're gonna have to switch to a bowl or a jar of some kind to maybe you're marinating in. Wrap each piece of chicken in a piece of bacon and hold the bacon on there with toothpicks. If you want to still marinate in the jar, you can you can not marinate the bacon. It's not really necessary. Reserve a little bit of your marinade to brush on your chicken while you're grilling it. That's You don't want to use the marinade out because it had the raw chicken in it. It may not get cooked enough, that type of thing. So reserve a little bit of marinade or make a little bit extra for brushing the chicken with. Uh, and, and so now we've added the bacon to it either as part of the marinade or if we want to be able to marinate in a bag, we put the the bacon on right before we cook it. That's the, If I'm just going to do bacon... That's the way I usually do it. I don't marinate it with the bacon on it. I marinate it by itself, add the bacon, then onto the grill. Then I can use cause I can use a big two-gallon Ziploc bag. I can put a ton of chicken in there, and I can zip that up, and I can stay. And that is a marinate for a full day. So this is a 48-hour in-advance meal. This is something you do on a weekend or something like that where you have the time. You want to cook this chicken slow. Uh, and, and dark meat is king for this. You can do this with breasts, you can do this with wings, but legs and thighs, you can cook it slow, it stays juicy. It lets all of that flavor incorporate. So one day of the marinade marinating itself with all this mixture in it, and then one day of the chicken marinating and then onto the grill. Now, you, this recipe came from a very traditional way to make doves in the field uh, from Texas dove hunting. And that's basically, you take the dove, you slice both sides of it, you stick a jalapeno in each side of the breast, wrap a piece of bacon around it, mix up some beer, some soy sauce, some Worcestershire sauce, which were the base of the marinade here, brush it with that, put it over mesquite, mesquite right out of the fields uh, in West Texas, and that's cooked on little grills all over Texas in dove season. So, taking it to its logical conclusion, do this with chicken thighs, this does not work well with the legs. Get some chicken thigh bone the thigh about three quarters boned so that basically you can unroll it and the bones just barely left on, on the uh, chicken thigh take a half a jalapeno put it inside there, roll it back up, wrap that in bacon, marinate that put that on the grill, cook that that's the full Monte Spirco chicken you want it a little bit hotter, use a serrano pepper or something like that, you want a little bit milder, you can use a poblano with jalapenos this dish is never too spicy for anybody so I really don't downgrade from the jalapenos at all, it cooks so long it's more of the flavor of that pepper coming through it, uh, you can use habanero in there if you're really brave, but that is going to really spice it up an awful lot but there's a recipe with the parsley and with the basil and if you do it like that, use large amounts of it, it really comes through the whole thing and you taste it even in the end product um some other herbs I want to really say you know, like, it's hard for me to say like just these five herbs because there's some other ones I think belong in your garden no matter what, cilantro, mint, sage and chives, couple real quick things with these real simple each one cilantro, remember the recipe for bruschetta right, mix the olive oil mix the sweet pepper add jalapeno add cilantro and put that in the refrigerator for an hour instead of you know several hours mix it up, salsa right? I and mean, that's it take and you want to make it really like an awesome salsa, get yourself a can of black beans, add a can of black beans, right, or uh, take your ear of corn, uh, wrap it up in aluminum foil, throw it on your grill, and turn it a few times until the kernels get a little bit of a browning to them, take that, let it cool, slice the corn off the cob, throw that into the salsa, so you got tomatoes, jalapenos, garlic, cilantro, corn, that's it, that's, it's a whole thing. There's, there's no more needed to it than that. Uh, and mix the You can, you can use the olive oil if you want, but it's not traditional for a salsa. The, ju- the juiciness comes from, uh, the tomatoes. You don't need anything to kind of stretch that out a bit. So, there's one with the cilantro. My wife will put cilantro on anything. In a salad, she's become like a cilantro freak. Anytime she sees something, she's like, can you put cilantro on that? I am like, you do put anything on anything, but, you know, maybe you shouldn't in this case, but cilantro is a great one. Mint. Uh, mint is awesome for, I don't care if it's spearmint, peppermint, what have you, making teas. So you take just a few leaves of fresh mint, uh, pour some boiling water over it, steep it for about two minutes, add a little bit of honey, pull your mint leaves off, done. Mint, though, mint, olive oil, rosemary. Can we go back to the other one? Mix that together. Give it a little while to kind of gel and come together. Mince the mint really, really, really well, uh, and then go do that on lamb. So there's, there's another one for mint. Sage, sage is very traditional with turkey. Uh, finely chopped sage, uh, finely chopped sage, some dried uh, rosemary, a little bit of basil, mixed together with some olive oil into like a paste. Rub that on the breast of uh, turkey, or if you're going to do just turkey drumsticks, rub that on turkey drumsticks. Fabulous. Sage can go in so many different things, but it just goes beautifully with any kind of a poultry, especially a poultry cooked with a skin on. Uh, and the last one are chives. Chives should be everywhere. Uh, both garlic and onion, in the salads, in the soups, on potatoes, you name it, add them all there. And, I mean... Here's the thing I want you to take away from today. Don't make this stuff, I know I said it before, I know I'm saying it again, but don't make this stuff complicated. Just start growing all these herbs and anything you think it might be good with, use it. And with the exception of oregano, which again, and and rosemary, especially if you're using fresh, with the exception of those two, the other stuff that I've talked about today, don't be afraid to use lots of it. Bring the flavor, I think that's what too many people do is you know they, they make this huge pot of food and, and then into it goes a teaspoon of basil and a teaspoon of oregano and it's like enough spaghetti sauce to feed like 20 people and, and it's, it's good, but it just doesn't have that that wow factor well why because it's only a teaspoon. You know, and there's nothing fresh. And, you know, one of the things I learned as a home brewer is adding things at different times. Not everything has to go in at the beginning. Add stuff in the middle. Add stuff in the end. Always taste your food. But keep it fun. Keep it simple. And grow as much of this stuff as you can. And then realize the health benefits. I think that's so important. You realize that these things are so easy to do. They make your food so much better. And you're constantly strengthening your body. You're constantly treating your body for certain bacteria that maybe you don't want to be part of your body. And I know it went a little bit long, but hey, I missed I missed a show yesterday for you guys. I'm not sure I'll be able to get one out tomorrow, but uh, hopefully this was a good one for you. And hopefully it makes you start to look at, you know, your herb gardening a little bit differently. And, and the big thing that I wanted for today was that people that just have that patio or have that little square because they have a garden, you know, they call like a garden home and you don't have much of a backyard or renters or people that are limited to container gardening at the office. Or at a friend's house or something and they maybe I grow one tomato and one pepper plant, I get a few off each one a year, and you just feel like you can't produce that much for yourself. I wanted you to realize how big a deal five pots full of herbs could be. And I want you to start thinking, like, if you do have more area, like, parsley, you need to start cooking parsley in everything. Parsley is a biannual. That means it comes back in the second year. And basically, your first year of parsley, you can cut big bunches off of it. And then, and to go through the winter, come back in the second year. And early in the second year, you just get tons of production. Uh, that's what my experience has been, especially with the moss curled style of parsley. You get a big pile of it, you cut it, it just grows back. You cut it, it grows back. You cut it, it grows back. You cut it, it grows back. That year though, when it warms up, it sends up big old stalks, the leaves change, they're not really that good anymore. Big white pancake shaped tiny white flowers, right? So you got like a big pancake shape with tons of little white flowers in it. Beneficial insects go nuts over it. They're all over it. billions of seeds show up, right? If you if you have the space, I suggest you get a little area three foot diameter or so as your parsley patch. And when parsley goes to seed, yank it out and just Throw all the seed on the ground. And if you do that, by the second or third year, you'll have more parsley than you could ever use. Then it'll just keep coming, get it in there thick, and start sprinkling the seed throughout the rest of your gardens. Make parsley uh, a, a happy weed in your garden, and it'll just keep coming back over and over again. If there's too much of it somewhere, cut it back. You can throw it into the compost. You can use it for your cooking. But parsley definitely needs to be something that you're growing. Here's a little trick that I did this year. Certain herbs are perennial, especially in the southern United States. Uh, those include oregano, uh, thyme, uh, rosemary, mint. So in my container gardening this year, with moving to Arkansas and not being able to do very much, one of the things I did is like in with my tomatoes there. Uh, one 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 thing I've got actually a tomatoes a couple a couple peppers and a thyme plant. And then I've got another one. It's a couple peppers uh, and a um, a mint plant. And uh, another one with a little rosemary bush in it. And what's going to happen is this year, those peppers will grow to the fall, the fall will come, and they'll die. By then, there'll be a huge root system of the perennial herb. As we're building out our herb gardens, then I can take a set of these little tiny pots, this great big massive root system of this perennial herb, and put it to its little herb garden or its little location within an herb garden. Uh, On rosemary, uh, from experience I'll tell you this, they turn into bushes slash trees. So you want to grow rosemary and either keep it very well trimmed and trained back or you want to put and basically decide it's going to be like a little mini bush. So give it a place where it's behind everything else because it's going to grow taller, it'll get plenty of sun, it can handle the cold, but give it its own space and understand that it's going to take over that space. Uh, your oregano will run a lot, but you can control it fairly easily. Uh, it gets along well with other things, even though it is a runner Mint same thing with rosemary only it 's low to the ground instead of high to the ground it will It will take everything over for mint. I suggest you build yourself a little rock garden or something like that, and you fill that with mint. And that's your mint area. And like you said, you have like a parsley patch, your mint patch, your rosemary tree. They can all be co-located, but you've got to kind of give them their own little pockets of dirt to work with, or they'll take each other over. And never plant rosemary on the south side of a clump that it's part of a planting it. Plant it on the north side. Why? Because it's going to grow taller. If you plant it on the on the on the uh on the south side, it'll grow up, it'll shade everything else out. And then it'll just start growing into that space and it'll take it over. So you want to put rosemary set back to the uh, to the north side of any type of herbal arrangement that you're making with it. But the big thing, have fun. Have fun with this stuff, guys. And understand that, yes, it's a prep. Because all of that that stuff that's in your pantry, all of that canned food, all of that long-term storage food, even if you don't have a great big garden harvest, when you have these fresh herbs to include in your cooking just like the little thing I gave you with the crushed tomatoes and the chicken and the bisquick you add fresh basil to that it changes everything so grow these herbs cook with these herbs have fun if I gave you a recipe today and you're trying to figure out well is it exactly this much or that much just use the guidelines cook it the way I described it if you don't like something change it next time it's going to be good enough the first time you'll make it better suited to yourself the second time Don't live and die by recipe books and recipe cards. They're starting places. They teach you combinations. But like I said, the thing I gave you today with the pork wrapped around the apples with the brown sugar and the glaze and the bacon, would have never came up if I didn't understand from a recipe, pork and apples go together. But that recipe, as far as I know, doesn't exist anywhere. was created in my head today because I'm not afraid to try these things, put things together, and see what happens. Try that. Try all of these different things I gave you. And the big thing, know this. As long as you're putting fresh herbs into your body, you are on some levels improving your health. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of today's uh, Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way. Body of there care.